This is the California Liberty Project Podcast. So, welcome back to the California Liberty Project Podcast. This is your weekend Liberty Podcast. My name is Greg, and I thank you very much for being here. Make sure to follow us on Instagram, on Twitter, and very, very soon, hopefully this episode, we're going to be getting on to Rumble and YouTube. So check out the California Liberty Project video pages there, Rumble, YouTube, and we're going to be expanding. So uh, thank you very much for all of your support so far. Make sure to like the show, share it, and leave a review if you have time. And let's uh, keep growing the show. We've got some great guests, and it's been a great launch this summer. And I'm really excited to keep it going with some more great guests on the horizon. So with that being said, in today's episode, I'm going to be speaking with Michael Bolden of the 10th Amendment Center. And we talked about some really important things here for Californians and for Americans in this federal constitutional republic of ours. We talked about things such as local control and political decentralization. We talked about nullification and the principles of 1798, you know, as espoused and as expounded upon by Jefferson and Madison and other great patriots in response to the Alien and Sedition Acts and other unconstitutional um, legislation. And these are really important concepts because I think as Californians and as Americans in general, we are not used to going out and claiming our natural rights, claiming our liberty, which is merely protected or recognized by the Constitution. Of course, none of our rights are actually given to us. They're not, they're not set forth in the Bill of Rights. They are merely recognized. Our pre-existing innate natural rights are there. They're our birthright. And they should just be respected and recognized by any kind of law, whether it's the Constitution and the Bill of Rights or additional federal laws, or, of course, any laws that the the states are going to pass as well. They cannot um, subsume or uh, block out our inalienable natural rights. So it was a great conversation. Um, I'm really looking forward to sharing that with you. And uh, without further ado, let's get right to Michael Bolden. So I'm back with Michael Bolden of the 10th Amendment Center. I'm really happy to have Michael. Michael, thank you for joining me on the California Liberty Project podcast. Great to have you. I'm not used to hearing the words California and Liberty back to back. So the concept is awesome, right? Because if you don't start talking about it and working towards it now, it's never going to happen, right? It doesn't matter what the odds are against us. If someone doesn't start trying to stand up and do something that's right, it it goes nowhere, right? So awesome. Excited to be here. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, and there's definitely an element of let's say wishful thinking with yeah. that. And um, the way I, I've kind of talked about our show here and just some of the, the little humble ideas we're trying to put forth, it's almost like we are in the uh, pamphleteering phase, mm. right? As you've covered so much on your show, I mean, so much of this didn't necessarily happen overnight. Even going back to the 1760s, yeah. you know, before 1775, Lexington and Concord, these guys had to get fed up. They had to start putting out the pamphlets. They had to start riling people up. And maybe they only got 25 to 30% or whatever that number is of the patriots who were kind of sick of things. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I mean, I, if, I feel like that's how I am here. Uh, John Adams, in a bunch of letters, uh, probably most notably in 1818, Hezekiah Niles, he he would write over and over. He said the start of the controversy between the colonies and Great Britain wasn't the shooting war. The war happened after the revolution, and the real American Revolution was a change in the thoughts of the people, the political, religious, economic, social viewpoints of the people. It was a change in understanding of sovereignty or final authority, which is always in the hands of a single person or a group of people, a cabal. Basically, they could change things on a whim, basically an unwritten, living, breathing constitution, which is a dead one, really, because if government can do whatever it wants, it's an arbitrary government. And that was one of the complaints in the Declaration of Independence. So Adams thought that the beginning of the revolution, the change in thought of the people, started all the way back in 1761 with James Otis Jr.'s great speech against the writs of assistance, where he said an act against the Constitution is void. And people are like, what do you mean? The, an mm-hmm. act is legal if the government says so. And that's how people mostly treat it today. But we are starting to see some people really hungry for the view of the founders and the old revolutionaries. That is, liberty first, and that the Constitution is the supreme law of the land, whether the government agrees with how it's supposed to be or not. That's absolutely right. And it is almost revolutionary thinking, isn't it? Because I think we, and I say that collectively, obviously, but we have become so accustomed to just kind of accepting, well, what comes out of Washington? You know, it's the supremacy clause, and you've covered this so well on your show. Maybe, if you would, explain to my audience, um, you know, please, if you would, the supremacy clause doesn't just mean that whatever comes out of D.C., is like coming down off of Mount Sinai, you know, in two tablets. Okay. It's not the supreme law of the land. So can you go into that a little bit? Because I think you've, you've done a really great job explaining that, as I've heard you explain it in the past. I actually like to back it up a little bit before that and understand what the founding generation fought a long, bloody war to get away from. And I mentioned an arbitrary government. Uh, it, in the years leading up to the shooting war, the British passed a law as they repealed the Stamp Act. They passed another law that claimed power over the colonies in all cases whatsoever. So the British were basically taking the position that if they pass something in any issue on anything at any time against anybody all the time for all eternity, their view was supreme, unlimited British supremacy. And that's what they fought to get against. John Hancock, for example, he talked about in his Massacre Day oration, they did an annual oration uh, commemorating that great tragedy. But in his uh, uh, commemorative speech, he talked about how taxation without representation, that wasn't the core thing that the people were standing up against. That was just a cause of the root problem. That is a government, an arbitrary, unlimited government claiming power over them in all cases whatsoever. So the founding generation, when they crafted this constitution, they wanted it to be completely different. They had a written constitution, limited, delegated, enumerated powers. Everything else, as James Madison put it in Federalist 45, was reserved to the states or to the people. The powers delegated to the proposed government was going to be few and defined. That is listed in the Constitution. And the Supremacy Clause really just reaffirms this 
view from the revolution that government is only supreme. Their acts are only supreme when they're in line with the Constitution. Everything else, as James Otis Jr. said some years earlier, is void. And of course, even Alexander Hamilton, who I don't like to speak too favorably too often of, but Hamilton, in comparison to most politicians today, was a small government guy. Of course, he, uh, we're not going to get into a Hamilton discussion, but one thing that he actually said was talking about the supremacy clause, he's like, look, basically what you're doing, and I forget which Federalist paper this was from, it may have been 78 or 33, actually, I think it was. Um, he basically said, acts of the government that are in pursuance of the delegated powers, and it talks about that in the text of the Constitution as well, are supreme. Everything else is an act of usurpation and should be treated as such. So that's part of what we're missing. And I think that's the big thing that's been missing, because a lot of people will point out, well, the government shouldn't have this so-called Affordable Care Act or this Patriot Act, or uh, I hate using the term assault weapons, but any type of gun control, for example. The right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. There's no but to that. I've read it a bunch of times. It doesn't say, unless the government can't detect what firearm you own, or unless the FBI doesn't give you approval through an unconstitutional background check system called NICS. So what people generally do is say, well, I think that's unconstitutional. We should vote the bums out and get new people in there to repeal this. Or we should go to the federal courts in the hopes that the federal courts are going to limit federal power. But really, while these things, all these types of actions, they're basically asking the government to limit itself. And if we're going to take the Hamiltonian view, which I rarely will ever do, maybe we shouldn't even, maybe we Please should just do. edit this out. But, right. <laughs> but really, if we're going to take this Hamiltonian view, that as soon as they go beyond the limits of the Constitution, we have to recognize it as a violation of the sovereignty of the people of the several states, final authority of the people, because all power, as George Mason told us, comes from the people. And then they have to be treated that way. It... It's not about getting the government to limit itself. It's about the people standing up for liberty, whether the government wants them to or not. And we can go through founder after founder after founder, old revolutionary, saying the same thing. James Otis Jr. in 1767, writing as freeborn American, he said, if we do not resist at the first attack, it may be too late. He didn't say, if we don't vote the bums out or ask the government to limit its own power, if we do not resist first. Mercy Otis Warren, the great muse of the American Revolution, she told us that uh, all power comes from the people and they have an incontestable right to check the creatures of their own creation. The people no longer look at government as a creature of their own power and they don't treat it like that. And that's where I think things have gone really off the rails. Yeah, and you mentioned usurpation and kind of came back to it a few times. Yeah, sorry if I My get off the rails a little bit. I, I love it. <laughs> Man, because once no, you get me it. going, I'm, I'm never going to shut up. <laughs> no, that's awesome. That's, that's why I wanted to have you on. Um, usurpation. So that that has kind of a specific, it, well, it, I think it does have a specific meaning for the founders. And the way I understand it, and maybe you can add some, you know, kind of flesh this out, but usurpation is almost, as I see it, as I would describe it, a treading upon someone else's sovereignty. Yeah. So if the people are sovereign, right, it's 
that means our government is kind of just go ahead and it's helping itself to some of our power. Yeah, it's is theft. that a fair way to, to describe it? It's theft. It's a theft of yeah. power because if the people have only right. delegated through the Constitution, well, the people of the several states, if we're being technical, uh, if the people of the several states have delegated to their general government, and people like Jefferson and so many others referred to the federal government of the time, they called it the general government because it was only going to have very general powers. So if the people delegate to the general government a specific set of powers because they thought it was going to be better that way and everything else is reserved to them or to their states as each as each state the people of each state determined if the general government starts doing stuff beyond those limits it's actually stealing that final authority from the people st george tucker and his great view of the constitution of the united states this is the first long form overview of the details of the original legal meaning of the constitution printed first in 1803. Jefferson had a bunch printed or purchased and handed out to his cabinet, for example. He thought this was an incredibly important book. And Tucker said, and this is different than treason as the crime listed in the in the Constitution, but he felt that usurpation, in his words, was treason against the sovereignty of the people. This is a crime against the final authority of the people. Now, mind you, in many situations today, and you know, us being Californians, we're surrounded by people who absolutely fear and hate liberty. But the truth is, it's like that everywhere. We just get it a little bit more obvious here in California, especially where I'm in LA. Uh, the fact of the matter is most people aren't in favor of liberty. They may be on one issue or another or opposing one team or another, but a wholesale love and support and loyalty to liberty, that's how Samuel Adams described things back in 1748. He said, true loyalty is found in love and possession of liberty. So that should be our primary goal, and that really isn't for most people. And if we're taking that view, we have to start looking at government actions as a crime against the people. Now, how do you deal with that? Tucker told us that even if the people have basically given up their duty to stand up for liberty, to uh, defend their own constitution, or maybe it's been too dangerous to do it for so long, that doesn't mean they don't have the authority, the sovereign authority to resume that power whenever they're ready to do so. And that's what we're building the foundation for, even with simple conversations like this. Right. This is the so pamphleting era, right? It's the pamphleteering era, absolutely. Even here in California, we're, we're still allowed. Shh, don't tell me. We can <laughs> so, still so. actually put out ideas and podcasts in our little pamphlets, right? Well, you know, John um, Dickinson talked about this. This is another name that a lot of people don't know. He was uh, called the penman of the revolution. In 1767, against the hated Townsend Acts, he wrote the most widely read documents on American liberty up until publication of Thomas Paine's Common Sense in January of 70, 1776. And he asked a question. He said, who are a free people? And he, you know, and I'm going to paraphrase, but he basically said, not that people who just happen to live under a government that happens to be allowing them to do some things that make them feel free. That's not freedom. That's just luck. Or maybe the tyrants haven't gotten aggressive enough. 
a free right. people to Dickinson are the people who live in a system where the government is so checked and controlled that as soon as it tries to get out of line, it's put right back in its box. Jefferson, some years later, he told us that a free people claim their rights as derived from the laws of nature and not as a gift of their chief magistrate. And that's the same type of thing that I try to reiterate when I say things like, we the people have to learn how to exercise our rights whether the government wants us to or not. It's just repeating what the founders told us what freedom was all about. Absolutely. So, uh, Michael, clearly you have a love and a great knowledge of history, and you've, you've dived into it, and I love it. Um, that's why your show is so popular. It's pretty, it's so, kind of a niche topic sometimes, no, it's, but it's I love really it. it's really cool, but I, I love it because it's different for a Liberty podcast, and it's really cool. That is your niche, and let me ask you about that, because I'm just interested. Okay, cool. Um, have you always been a history buff, or kind of, have you been someone who has dived into history more, almost strategically, so you could bring along more folks into the liberty movement or is this just a passion for yours or maybe both a little of both i remember years ago yeah. when i was a kid i would read i read about some history rise and fall of the soviet empire and things i found these things very interesting and then i stopped for many years and kind of checked out to be a socialist for a while <laughs> and at some point uh, i started seeing that and i started my organization back in 2006 really just as a, a one-person blog because everything that i heard coming from the bush administration at that time whether it was Patriot Act or the war on terror, undeclared, unconstitutional wars, or then a couple years after that, we had the Real ID Act, the drug war, so many things that the government was doing, I felt that either wasn't authorized to do, or they would lie about the results to say, oh, we're going to do this, and then they end up expanding it or it costs 10 times as much. So I'm like, I'm just going to start blogging about how everything, it doesn't matter which team is in charge, almost everything mm -hmm. that they do, they're not authorized to do or they screw up. And honestly, that was just kind of the beginning. And as I've gone through my own learning process, and I'm still learning every single day right now, I have found so much incredible strategic advice from the old revolutionaries. I did a podcast just this morning. I know we're recording on Friday. I'm not sure when this will uh, be published. But I did a podcast this morning on the passage of the Suffolk Resolves in 1774, drafted by Joseph Warren. And this was really the beginning of the Revolutionary War in Massachusetts. They basically had this strategic advice. How do we deal with the largest government on earth? How do we push back and fight against them? Well, Warren told us non-resistance, non or non-compliance and resistance to the coercive or the intolerable acts. Tax resistance. We're going to withhold our taxes. Get sheriffs to stop enforcing uh, their their unconstitutional laws. Declare their acts as unconstitutional. Ignore their courts. Use free market system of arbitration and dispute resolution. All kinds of stuff that would be seen as crazy and radical today was passed unanimously in Suffolk County, which included Boston. Then Paul Revere took it over in one of his less famous rides or less known rides. He brought it to Philadelphia. They read it, yeah. and the next day they passed it unanimously as well, as well in the first official act of the first Continental Congress. So the idea of resistance, non-compliance, getting your local law enforcement to stop participating in their enforcement, and then even the more aggressive things uh, like, for example, boycotts of, well, taxation, which is theft. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that was that was the Joseph Warren, who was a son of liberty, right? And I think he died on Bunker Hill or maybe yes. Breed's Hill. Bunker yeah, Hill, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. he's a guy, he's a guy, here's a great revolutionary war hero that fought with honor for liberty. Uh, he gave his life for so others could have a chance to live more free. And that's his view of how he was taking things. And he's told us that standing armies always endanger the liberty of the people. So uh, someone like that, I think we need to start paying attention to a little bit more. And even though maybe a lot of people who uh, support liberty in the Constitution also love the bloated largest government military complex in the history of the globe, they also should start paying attention to the fact that we have another kind of a de facto standing army that is doing all the enforcement stuff that the founding generation warned us about. And that comes from everything from the Department of Homeland Security to that hated IRS to the FBI, even Health and Human Services, the Social Security Administration has all kinds of guns and ammo. They get this stuff because they're going to use it or they think they're going to need to use it. And who are they going to use it against? It's not going to be France. No. I mean, so we have to be very, very cautious about this and study what the founders had to say about this and how to deal with it. Absolutely. And when you go back and you read these documents as you have and you've put them out there, sometimes I think it sounds almost shocking to people. Or if people would bring it and import it to 2022 and say, oh my gosh, yes. these guys were like revolutionary. Yeah and radicals and it's like well yeah, exactly yeah, that's why we have a country today you know such as it is a federal republic i mean right? if i were going to get on some mainstream uh, social media platform and talk about tax resistance non-compliance their laws are unconstitutional and void but did not also mention well i'm just letting you know what joseph warren said what samuel adams said uh, what james otis jr said I would probably get banned as a, you know, very dangerous. I mean, the Southern Poverty Law Center has already called me dangerous hate leader or some whatever they term they want to use. A badge of honor. <laughs> of right? it's Lou Rockwell. I'm, you, you've followed Lou as well. So, yes, I've met Lou before. So yeah. Lou, some years ago, he said, you know, it's a badge of honor. And I just, I can hear, like it was by email, but I could hear him saying that to me some years ago as well. He's like, the that's pin awesome. may hurt, but it's a badge of honor to get attacked no, that, by these people. Awesome. <laughs> um so we touched on some of this, but in, um, in, in Federalist 46 and other places in the Federalist Papers, Madison said, and I've heard, you, I've heard you talk about these topics numerous times, so you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. But he said that ultimate authority resides in the people alone. I love that sentiment. And he also goes on to refer to refusal to cooperate with the officers of the union. And of course, that the people would prefer their local or their state governments to this national or federal consolidated government. So let me ask you, you and I might feel, we might love these sentiments, but was Madison wrong or was Madison naive here? Because I think the majority of our countrymen, you know, of Americans, don't necessarily share all of those sentiments. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I don't think they yeah. share any of them. I don't think people today share any of them. Um, I mean, most people aren't willing to use a refusal to, again, this is Madison's words. He said, how do we deal with the feds when they usurp power? This is, you know, 
talking about the federal and state governments lines in the sand about enumerated powers in Federalist 45 and 46. And again, in 48, he talked about how parchment barriers need something other than words on paper to be enforced. And the strategy for him was in 46, a refusal to cooperate with officers of the union by individuals and states states includes their political subdivisions, the localities, counties, cities as well. And he said, if a number of adjoining states took this type of uh, position, the federal government would hardly be willing to encounter it. In other words, at a time when the government was going to be so small, it would be unrecognizable in comparison to today. He said it was going to be the most effective way to defeat federal programs, whether you thought they were unconstitutional or constitutional and just bad policy. Unfortunately, most people aren't on board with that. They also aren't on board with uh, Madison's views on having an armed populace, a militia, where he gets into some detail on that as well. And Patrick Henry in the Virginia Ratifying Convention, debating a little bit with Madison, specifically told us that the great object is that every man be armed. They wanted everyone to be armed and trained for many reasons, and it certainly isn't about hunting. Well, I mean, of course, you want to be able to do that, but it isn't just about the individual natural right to self-defense. Of course, we know that the right of self-defense is considered by many as either a primary or the first law of nature. It's a natural right to be able to have self-preservation. But without that, you always tend to, societies lean on large permanent standing armies. And Madison specifically said, as the greatest danger to liberty is from large standing armies, it's best to prevent them by having a good militia. So the more that the people are armed, and not just with 45s, but military-grade weapons, Tench Cox told us that the, um, every terrible implement of the soldier is the birthright of an American. So the more that you have that, the less it's you have to rely on government to supposedly protect you. That's the whole point. We can't rely on government because government sucks at everything it's it kind does. kind of screws everything right? up, right? We, yeah, or it does really, really, e or it does really evil things really well. So what you're saying, Michael, is you support legalization of F-15s for, for all. Is that what you're telling me? Because <laughs> well, I can get maybe behind just that. A just a decrim with a medical card. Yeah, okay. Well, baby <laughs> steps, right? Yeah. Um, so I think this is fascinating because Madison, obviously, and Jefferson in the Kentucky and Virginia revolutions, um, you know, kind of, they gave us those steps, those principles of 98, which you've talked about and which yep. I've read about and, and so many of us liberty enthusiasts are really um, just enamored with. So the principles of 98, 1798, that is, um, not 1998. Um, the other 98. Yes. But the way I see it is we're not, we're not pursuing hard nullification, um, so-called hard nullification. But what I've seen, and give me your thoughts on this, but the past few years, I think we've almost stumbled our way into soft nullification with issues that the left and the right might value differently, even abortion uh, laws, you know, with some of the southern states beginning in Oklahoma starting to encroach on that uh, judicial um, tyranny and supremacy with marijuana laws, right? With, with states just saying, yeah, we don't really care about Controlled Substance Act, this or any of that. We're just going to start kind of making our own laws. And I see the, both of those and many more instances as being very positive. But yep, it's almost like they've stumbled into it like, oh, uh, we're just going to do this. We're just going to yeah. kind of do nullification. They don't even maybe remember that these are the principles of 98 and the, that this is nullification. That's what it's about. 
right? Yeah, and then following the lead, and we've been pushing for this for many years, and I spoke at the uh, 25th Annual Gun Rights Policy Conference. It was in San Francisco, of all places, maybe a decade or so ago. My entire speech was talking about cannabis, and I was talking about how, oh, okay, there's like 14 states that are doing this, even though the feds at every level say you can't. When people, I think, are getting a little worried, what the hell is this dude talking about at this <laughs> yeah. gun policy conference? And I wrapped it up by basically saying, you know, for the sake of liberty, I hope that you do the same thing with the right to keep and bear arms for the sake of all of our liberty. Because, of course, the only way we can be free, like Jefferson said, is when we claim our rights as derived from the laws of nature. And we're starting to see some moves. We've been pushing the same kind of strategy, legalize on a state or a local level or decriminalize on a state or a local level what the federal government says you can't do. Uh, We've seen some states start to decriminalize, for example, sound suppressors, uh, where, you know, this is an NFA, National Firearms Act of 1934. The feds say you have to do certain things, and the states are just saying, well, we're not going to prosecute it. They recognize, I think, like I do, that the ATF, which shouldn't exist in the first place, has about 5,500 employees for the entire country. About a third of them are pencil pushers, and their capacity every year of closing cases is somewhere between seven and 10,000 closed cases per year. Now, that's seven to 10,000 too many in my book, but think of it this way. If there were 13 or 14 or 15 million undocumented short-barreled shotguns floating around or sound suppressors, illegal according to the NFA, there's nothing that the feds could do to stop that. So this is really about a numbers game. The ATF doesn't have the capacity to stop the people if they start exercising their rights without their permission. And in Missouri, just this last year, after eight years of working on a piece of legislation, we helped get past something called the Second Amendment Preservation Act, which the Department of Justice hates so much that they're suing one of the worst one of the worst federal lawsuits I've ever seen as far as like the quality of it. And I tend to not read these too often, but this is a pretty bad one. They're probably going to lose it. Who knows? Uh, they might win a round or two, but I think in the long run they'll lose. But basically, Missouri is taking the position that, well, we're not going to participate in enforcing any purely federal gun control measures. And the result is, all around the state of Missouri, they're starting to withdraw from what are called joint task forces with the ATF. And the ATF is very unhappy. They're saying this is dangerous. We know it's, of course, much safer when the ATF can't operate properly. But this is the types of things we need to start uh, seeing from people on the right. Instead of just waiting for a court case to go your way every 30 to 50 years or so, I mean, generations can come and go before you get the Supreme Court to do the right thing and decentralize something. And meanwhile, everything else they touch over that same amount of time expands government power. So waiting for the Supreme Court to do the right thing or to get the right people in office to do the right thing. Well, Patrick Henry warned us against this. He said, show me that age and country where the the fate of liberty, and of course I'm paraphrasing, is in the hands of their rulers being good men without a consequent loss of liberty. He said this was a mad attempt, and every single time you waited on government to do the right thing, in the long run you'd lose lose liberty. And that's exactly what happened uh, over the last century or so. We live under the largest government in history, and we're starting to see some moves in the right direction. Rather than a population on its knees begging for permission, people are starting to learn how to live a little bit more free. We can apply the same principles to any issue. I mean, 
some of them are more difficult. I mean, the IRS is going to be a very tough one. Uh, but over time, I think this is how it'll have to play out. Yeah. And of course, I'm always reminded, you know, of that old, uh, that old axe, that old adage, uh, free people do not ask permission. And you're absolutely yeah. right. People just need to go out and basically seize their liberty. Um, peacefully is what I'm referring to. Um, of course, of course. So, I mean, even Samuel Adams in response to, he wrote a letter to Joseph Warren after passage of those Suffolk resolves. And he yeah. said, hey, we've got support in the Continental Congress. Just stay on a defensive. Don't get all crazy. I know you guys are ready to roll over there in Boston. Stay chill, stay in a defensive uh, posture, and you will continue to get support. And when it's really needed, they will rally to the cause. And I think that's the right approach for today as well. Yeah. Yeah, and just to make it clear to everyone too, nullification, of course, is not, it's not willy-nilly, do kind of whatever you want, write your own laws, just kind of do whatever. Nullification, it, it is systematic, um, and it's absolutely tracing back to, of course, natural rights really as recognized in the Constitution. Yes. And so basically the whole way that this compact, our agreement between the 13 colonies be becoming states, the whole way it was set up, of course, was as a compact, and they only joined under certain conditions. And basically, yep. we're just referring back to that compact, essentially, right? Yeah, that's um, a good way to put it. Yeah, and it's like, so if it's not in there, if it wasn't in that original compact, uh, the Constitution, then we're just recognizing that the feds can't do it. And we're just retaining those rights, almost in a Ninth Amendment kind of sense. You know, it's like, yeah, all of our rights didn't have to be written down, but we're still retaining them. And we're going to take this one back and we're going to take that one back, right? The founding generation considered the right to local self-government as important and as essential as individual natural rights. That's why the Ninth and Tenth Amendment are part of the Constitution. In fact, Jeff I mean, uh, Madison wanted to include the Tenth Amendment along with separation of powers in the body of the text of, of the Constitution itself. He felt if this was such an essential maxim. Now, you mentioned Jefferson. And one thing that I think even people who are on on board with the Jeffersonian response to the hated Alien and Sedition Acts, that a nullification of an act is the rightful remedy. They missed the line before that. And he basically said, you know, when they abuse powers, but they're within the lines of the Constitution, when they're just using the powers delegated to them in ways you don't like, well... Hmm. Let's say they declare war on somebody, and they followed the process to declare war as required by Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, but you don't want them to do that. To Jefferson, he said, a change of the members of government, vote the bums out, is the proper strategy. But, he said, where powers are assumed which have not been delegated, a nullification of the act is the rightful remedy. So as soon as they usurp power, the rightful remedy is not to wait. It's to stand up, reject, resist, and re nullify their acts immediately. And, of course, James Otis Jr., again, back in the 1760s, said if we do not resist at the first attack, it may be soon be too late. You have to step up. It was opsta principius was the Latin phrase that um, it's basically nip the shoots of arbitrary power in the bud. So as soon as that power starts to grow, if you don't nip it, it's going to keep growing and growing and growing because we know power not only corrupts, power always seeks to expand. Absolutely. And so critically, too, we've been talking at the national level, certainly here in this conversation. As you know, Michael, as I, I'm sure we agree, there are states that are arbitrarily capricious and brutal with their power and tyrannical in many respects, and we happen to live in one, uh, California. <laughs> one so, out of 50. <laughs> one out of 50, yeah, to, to varying extents, <laughs> of right? Of course. Um, 
yeah, there's no there's no Shangri-La or, or perfect spot. But uh, the way that some of these general principles and natural rights might be uh, protected and applied, I think it might be similar, but it is different, if that makes sense. So we have a very specific constitutional structure at that yes. national level, of course. Yes. But I think you and I would both support political decentralization and different ways of finding liberty uh, with counties related to the state. But of course, that's a different structure. Can you speak to that at all in, in general? I know you have well, in the past. On, briefly, on I can. And James Wilson probably did the best job explaining this. He was one of the first uh, associate justices of the Supreme Court. He was probably much more influential than the Federalist Papers were at the time of ratification. His State House Yard speech of October 6, 1787 is kind of the definitive explanation during the ratification of how the Constitution would be structured. And then, of course, he had some speeches in the Pennsylvania ratifying convention as well. But basically, he said, you know, the structure of the the proposed Constitution for the general government is totally opposite of that of the states. There, anything that is not given is not reserved. But in the states, anything that isn't reserved is automatically considered given. So in a weird way, you have these kind of unlimited power states. And that's... and. I'd like to blame the states for being a problem, but in a lot of times, some of the worst things that the states do, and we look at the the emergency powers of the last couple of years, I, I don't think there's any of them, California included, that could have gotten away with what they did to us, to all of us, to all of society, to how much we're going to pay for all that free stuff and the shutdowns and all that crap we're going to pay now and in the next few years as well through that horrible inflation which is hammering us and is probably worse than what they're telling us. But they couldn't have done this without federal support, federal funding, federal stimulus cash. I mean, some of the federal stimulus cash during uh, the last couple of years of shutdown were actually used for gun control surveillance programs. There's so much loot being thrown around, and now we're paying for it with higher milk prices because they had to print that money. So the essential principle still is the same, even though it is probably in many cases more difficult for a locality to nullify in practice and effect a state government edict than it is to deal with the feds because the feds are so understaffed. I think the principle is still similar. It's not about... It really has to start with the people recognizing that they're at the top of the food chain. If you get enough people to say, we're not going to tolerate this, even though you may use a different strategy on a local level against Sacramento than you do on a local level versus Washington, D.C., it still ultimately gets down to the people loving liberty. Samuel Adams in 1771, I think he put it better than anyone. He said, all might be free if they valued freedom and defended it as they ought. So we really need a one-two punch. People have to love and understand and value liberty, and then they have to, like Thomas Paine told us, undergo the fatigues of supporting it simultaneously. We have very little of that happening, that one-two punch at the same time. Yeah, very little appetite for that, right? Because it's a little bit yep. uncomfortable, certainly. Of course. And, and I think at that state level, too, what I'm seeing, and it's it's different, it's, it's not totally analogous, but even local prosecutors, local DAs, yes. some of them are not actually enforcing or just kind of ignoring some tyrannical yes. or idiotic state laws. Yes. S- certain things like that actually give me some hope. You know, I kind of say, okay, that's that's a state level, state to local 
type thing. And honestly, here in L.A., there were for many years about 20,000 illegal food carts, food trucks. And if you think about it, the the city kept trying to shut them down. But people really were pissed. Okay, uh, you're going to shut down this grandma selling hot dogs on the corner? I mean, can't you go after somebody else? For years, the city tried to shut them down, threatening people over and over and over. And 20,000 illegal food service uh, businesses stayed open anyways. And that should teach us something. Because eventually, I think, I can't remember when it passed, but I think the city council at some point said and they didn't use these words but basically this is how it played out in practice you know those things that we told you you couldn't do for all those years well you you did it anyways so now we're going to make it legal so we don't look bad and ultimately that's what it gets down to it's about people whatever even if you don't think that was the right choice for them find something that's right for you and find other people to join you and find people who are willing to stand up for liberty in large numbers maybe it starts with talking about it building committees of correspondence like the founding generation did talked about the strategies and then sooner or later people are going to have to start moving forward and being more free absolutely it's never going to come from government never no it's got to bubble up from us the people and Mm -hmm. it might be uncomfortable at first or it's it certainly is something people are not used to doing right yes exactly Exactly. Um, so we just have a couple more minutes here michael Mm -hmm. i know um, i really appreciate your time this afternoon let me ask you kind of a fun question you probably These have, have all an been fun, to be honest with you. Good. No, I love it. This <laughs> nice. is great. Um, if someone said, Michael, what are the top three government agencies you would get rid of? Or maybe I should make it top two, but let's go with three, because I know that's kind of like a, an embarrassment of riches, right? In terms of ones you, you might eliminate. What would you what would you rank them as? One, two, and three. If someone said Num- you get you get three wishes, so to speak. Do they all have to be technically agencies or can they be departments? Oh, departments or agencies. Yeah, uh, I mean, whatever. Yeah, it's for fun. Number one, I'm going with James Madison. I'm going with Joseph Warren. I'm getting rid of the standing army. Okay. And instead of that, I'm encouraging uh, the people to be armed and well-trained and heavily armed as the first line of defense. No large permanent standing army. It needs to be cut back to a size that would be acceptable to the founding generation at best. Mm-hmm. James Madison said war is the greatest threat to liberty because, well, because it gives it armies and debts and taxes, and armies and debts and taxes are the known instruments for putting the many under the domination of the few. And of course, they lived through that in the Revolution and the massacre of Boston and the rest. That's number one. And number two would probably be the engine that funds all their crap and their social programs, and that is the Federal Reserve. Without the Fed, they can't... They would have to come to us and literally just rip all of our money out of our hands immediately and that would probably generate some level of resistance rather than this sneaky way of taxing us through inflation and devaluing our purchasing power jefferson warned about that type of thing the danger of fiat government funny money he said you know until people understand the cause of effect we're never going to get out of this boom bust cycle and he saw that all the way back in 1815 to 1818 when they were going through a similar problem at that time yes those are, I guess, you said three, though, right? Yeah, yeah. Anything else you want to throw in there? 
Oh man, DEA, ATF. Uh, Take your pick. Uh, get rid of the CIA, uh, the IRS, right, Department right. of Education, Health and Human Services. No. I mean, keep going, keep going. No, I the top two st- are big ones. Those are big ones that you mentioned. They're huge, and I think yeah. a lot of people who support the Constitution they're not happy hearing me talk about standing armies. So I've been ramping up that more and more and more of late because if I'm going to be truthful and true to the founders' view, I will go with Patrick Henry, James Madison, Joseph Warren, George Mason, all of the founding generation repeatedly warned us about the dangers of large standing armies. And we have the largest one on the face of the earth. It's too much. And... Absolutely. Maybe they're not using the the professional military to do enforcement on the people, but it sure gives them the ability to arm up local police with old military equipment. A lot of times it's brand new. About 30% of the so-called old military equipment that they send through the Pentagon's 1033 program to local police to militarize the local police and turn them into a national police force is brand new stuff. So the more militarized the society, the more power the government has, and the less liberty we all have. Yeah, absolutely. No, that that's a great answer. Thank you for that. Uh, just well, it's interesting at least, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, we might we might be daydreaming here, but uh, right. Well, yeah. you said go with it, right? Well, Michael, yeah, I really appreciate your time this afternoon. Um, before you go, though, so Michael is with, as we mentioned before, all of you out there in our growing audience should be following the Tenth Amendment Center. They do, and I think a lot of you do. But for anyone who's maybe new to Michael's work, 10thamendmentcenter.com, follow them on all your social media. They've got a great um, Instagram presence, too, and probably, I would imagine, that goes to TikTok or YouTube shorts. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You guys are all over, right? Do you want to give a quick plug for anything? For now. My favorite place for people to go is 10thamendmentcenter.com slash report. It basically takes all the kind of principles that I'm talking about and expands it into a free, downloadable, 148-page annual report on the state of the nullification movement. 10thamendmentcenter.com slash report. The first half talks about the foundational principles from the founders and the old revolutionaries, how to defend the Constitution when government refuses to do so, which is constantly, and how it was used throughout history from the founding generation and the early years of the Republic. And then the second half is how this stuff is being implemented today. I talked about the Missouri Second Amendment Preservation Act. We report on that. We report on uh, Montana's efforts. We're going to have a new version of that for 2022 out sometime in the next couple of months, but you should read the the current edition whenever you get a chance. You don't have to give your name or email, none of that. Just click a link and download for free. Awesome. And you can become a member, of course, over there for a few oh, of dollars course. a month. Of course. And, uh, please I, do so. And I really appreciate you mentioning that. I know a lot of people like to immediately shill memberships or donations. And for me, I try to shill our work. And I think that sure. is the best thing, because I think once people start getting into that rabbit hole of defending liberty, they're like, holy crap, there is no one on earth doing a better job. Tom Woods, at one point, he said, you know, there's no one on earth promoting doing a better job advancing the the venerable jeffersonian tradition of nullification better than us and i think we've really ramped it up since that time as well so uh it's really about just look and see what we do and i think you're going to find a lot of things that you want to support awesome and i really enjoy uh, your show path to liberty as well so michael uh thank you very much for joining us today on this friday afternoon uh really appreciate your time greg you rule i really appreciate it as well thank you awesome thanks very much man appreciate it This has been 
the California Liberty Project podcast. Make sure to subscribe, share it with others, and follow us on Instagram and Twitter.